This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Heartland's Touche Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. I recently attended a wonderful conference hosted by Liberty Fund discussing the work of the late, great Julian Simon and his critics, none of them who I believe are great. Uh, some of them may be late. Many take Simon's exploration of the topic of population and resource use as the ultimate refutation of environmental doomsaying. Still recently, the population control proponents are feeling their oats once again with the winds of climate catastrophe filling their sails. With this in mind, it is my pleasure to have on the podcast today two friends I made at the conference, Professor Pierre de Rochers and Joanna Sersmeck, I hope I pronounced both your names right, who co-authored the book Population Bombed, Exploding the Link Between Overpopulation and Climate Change. That's what they're here to discuss today. Pierre, Joanna, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So before we leap into a discussion of your book, Population Bombed, for our listeners who may not be familiar with either of you and your work, please tell us a little bit about yourselves, your respective backgrounds, and how you came to work on environmental and climate issues. Well, for my part, I am an associate professor of geography at the University of Toronto, I teach about environmental food and urban policies. Uh, my main contribution to my field, I'm an economic geographer by training, was to try to bring the study of human creativity in terms of our local environments. Let's say your listeners might be familiar with uh, Silicon Valley, make people more productive. And of course, uh, being a Gen Xer, I was always interested in environmental issues. I came across the work of Julian Simon in the early 1990s, and I thought it was a natural extension of uh, my work on creativity. And now humans differ from other animal species and can actually solve problems. And I'm a research librarian with a really weird background. So I originally worked in electrical engineering, but since then, I've moved on to um, the knowledge work that I do, and I have an interest in innovation uh, as well as knowledge production. So uh, what brought Pierre and myself together is the topic of my doctoral thesis, and that is Jane Jacobs, and specifically her impact in economics. So now, Pierre, you're from Canada. Joanna, you're from Poland, correct? That's right, but we both live and work in Canada. We've been here, well, Pierre was born here. I've been here for uh, too many decades to mention. <laughs> and I'm French-Canadian, so if your listeners wonder what kind of weird accent I have, I only began somewhat, I only became somewhat fluent in English at the age of 19. So. Wow. Well, I've been living with a uh, Hispanic uh, Venezuelan woman for 20 years now, uh, going on 20 years now, and I still don't speak much Spanish, so you're ahead of me. Um, Pierre, Joanna, what motivated the two of you to write, and this is the title of the book, Population Bombed, Exploding the Link Between Overpopulation and Climate Change? Well, it was a bit of a fluke, really. We uh, published a piece 
to uh, well to mark or in our case to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the end of the Julian Simon Paul Ehrlich bet in which uh, Ehrlich the biologist assumed that the more people uh, there are and the more they consume the scarcer resource would become over time and the more expensive they would they would become and Simon argued to the contrary that the more people means more brains and markets provide the feedback signal like prices that allow people to discover new resources, use them more efficiently, develop substitutes. And so uh, Simon won the bet uh, convincingly. I thought we should mark the 25th anniversary. We published a piece in a publication called uh, Spiked in the United Kingdom. And uh, Benny Pizer of the Global Warming Policy Foundation came across it, liked it, and said, well, would you like to expand that into a policy paper? And maybe Joanna can take it from here. <laughs> yeah, so we started writing, but we never told Benny, and Benny, by the way, is also UK-based, as is spiked, um, how interested we became in the topic. So the more research we, we, we did, the longer this paper grew. And at some point, we realized we basically had a book. So we brought it to Benny and we said, hey, how about we publish a book? And it was uh, one of the very few that the Policy Foundation has published. So uh, I think I think we surprised him both with uh, the length and um, I guess the uh, poignant argumentation. He's been very happy with it. We actually were nominated for a, a prize. We were one of the runner-ups for a public policy prize a book in uh, in Canada. So uh, we did, I think, well, considering the modest beginnings and really the, the, the lack of uh, expectations, at least on our publisher's part. But to be honest, too, what also motivated us was how appalled we were by this whole rhetoric that people are just no longer mouths to feed, but essentially now greenhouse gas emission exhalers. Well, they, they are pollution. Right. That's that's what it is. That's what some of the philosophers that we have encountered in our work um, claim. Yeah, I've I've heard it for a number of decades since I was doing my graduate work in philosophy that humans are cancer, humans are pollution. Uh, the, the, the ideal human population is 200 million people on Earth. <laughs> they never talk wow. about what it would take to get there. Uh, but my suspicion is they think they'd be among the t- the people making the argument. They'd be a hundred among the two hundred million people that are still around. Um, so your book points out that the same arguments linking population to resource scarcity are dusted off, promoted, debated, and refuted, only to be raised again with each new generation of scholars and activists. You know uh, why is that? Well. If I may just add a little something to the book. So usually the way the story is told, you've got Malthus who made the basic argument in uh, around the, at the turn of the 19th century that uh, population growth is unsustainable. Eventually we will hit natural limits. And then usually people jump to uh, Paul Ehrlich's population bomb in 1968. But we made an effort in the book to show that the same debate is reborn really every generation, if not every decade, in between the two. So the track, and every time the optimists, people who argue that humans are different than other animals, people uh, trade, people innovate by recombining existing things in new ways, people who make the case that you cannot apply 
uh, simple biological analogies to human societies are proven right every generation. And yet the problem that we face, if we call ourselves optimists, but I like to call ourselves realists really, uh, is that the other side is unwilling to grant us our premise that humans have evolved beyond other species and that we do things that they don't. And this explains why we can actually create resources while the amount of physical stuff around us doesn't grow. You know, I uh, get weary of banging my head against the wall with people over climate. Uh, and what they share in common with these people um, that make the population arguments is that they they ignore or they uh, dismiss data. Data has nothing to do with it. It's all – Oh, you gotta have common sense. Just, it's, it's, of course it's impossible that if you keep adding people, we won't run out of resources. Of course it's impossible that if you keep adding people, we won't keep, we'll keep pumping out more and more CO2, which will destroy the earth. Of course, you just know that. Data can't disprove that. You can't, we can't have nasty facts get in the way of theory, but it's, it's sort of the same thing. And what's funny is, the progenitor of the population argument, Malthus, uh, <laughs> He actually reconsidered his argument after he looked at data. These other guys like Ehrlich and Garrett Hardin, nothing makes them reconsider their theory. But, but Malthus, to his credit, um, though he wasn't a, a, a trained scientist, I don't believe, um, said, you know what? Data proved me wrong. And he put out a second edition of his book, right? Yeah, well, he did uh, study mathematics, so at least we should uh, grant him that. And yes, uh, that's what's remarkable about Malthus, because the Malthus that people always hear about is the Malthus of the first edition of uh, his essay on population, which was published in 1798. So at the time, Malthus was young, was brash, wanted to prove his father wrong, was more of an optimist. And then uh, his book became, I think, an unexpected bestseller, and he had pushed back right away by uh, people like uh, Jean-Baptiste C in France and others who argued that, uh, no, you're wrong. How can you say that we're bad today? Look, there are less famines now in 1800 than in 1500 because things like the potatoes have come over from the America. There is corn. People have developed new agricultural technologies. And so he was forced to revise. He was challenged by other people. Uh, well, Joanna knows about Godwin. Well, yes, example. I was, I was in fact going to say that, uh, back in, in that period, and we're looking at, uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, there was actually a more honest debate than we have seen for a number of decades. Um, so we posit also in the book that part of the reason why the debate was, uh, a lot more fact-based and a lot less emotionally charged and, 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 and a lot less really, uh, let's say rhetorically, um, <clears throat> loaded is because um, at that point there were much lower stakes um, for the participants um, and they were simply doing experiments, gathering data and uh, uh, positing, uh, let's say, uh, suggesting theories. At this point, we have a machine of um, scientific uh, research that um, very often creates its own uh, incentives and these incentives are not tied to getting um, actual data but they're uh, more often tied to proving certain concepts or, in fact, creating causes for alarm because more catastrophes and more reasons for alarm 
usually means more funding. I mean, what 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 would a lot of these institutes and what would a lot of uh, the research programs do if not try to create further reasons uh, to uh, promote uh, certain kinds of agendas, right? So there are all sorts of psychological biases as well that um, go into that, including motivated reasoning um, through which observations end up fitting as opposed to disproving a particular um, idea. So, of course, that's very much against Popperian idea of what science and the scientific method should be. Yeah, well, yeah, I think I think you're, you've got something there is um, the, the stakes are were different back then in, in, in two ways. Um, even had Malthus been right, um, with the technology of the day, uh, and the way the world worked, it was highly unlikely that any national government was going to go on a serious program of, uh, of suppressing its own population or, uh, getting involved in the population affairs of, uh, other countries. Governments just didn't have that kind of, uh, reach. Uh, governments also weren't responsible for 90% of the funding for scientific research back then. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, and so the entrance of big government into big science uh, with the atom bomb—you know, basically uh, World War II—changed a lot. Um, created a lot of perverse incentives, both for government agencies, for the activist community, and for uh, many in the scientific community itself. No, it is a good point. And yet, at the same time, what I like to study, I became a geographer because uh, my interests are too broad for my own good. But And in recent uh, years, I've become interested in the culture of the Victorian era, where a lot of this uh, debate eventually took place. And you see how much people came to believe in progress in the 19th century, because the experience within a matter of decades, you know, the advent of the steam engine, the railroad, uh, steel ships, so Suddenly, you could go anywhere in the world in, in very short times. You could uh, bring over uh, wheat to the Argentinian pampas, the Canadian prairies. And so the world became a much smaller space. And at the same time, uh, people believed in development. Of course, at the time, everybody was poor by today's standards. And so they had no problem in transforming nature, coming up with new technologies. And they celebrated progress. And paradoxically, it seems to me, the wealthier we've become, the more comfortable we become, the less appreciative we are of what our, uh, of what our ancestors have accomplished. And you could argue to some extent, I imagine, that today we have so, so many people worried about uh, nature, about the environment, because we're so isolated from it, we're so protected from it with what uh, our ancestors have uh, gifted us. So, I mean, paradoxically, Joanna is more... Uh, um, knowledgeable about me about psychological causes, but I think there is this sort of reverse perverse effect, if I may call this, if I may call it this. Well, yes, and we've also really lost perspective, not just of what people have, um, how people have transformed Earth to be more life friendly and more um, human society friendly, but in many ways, scientific disciplines and uh, the larger world of academia ends up creating its own quote-unquote reality uh, by creating disciplinary mindsets. So um, what we find now is that a lot of the conversations around both population um, and uh, what people can create uh, are laden with biological um, verbiage. 
Um, and people are seen not as creative agents and as contributors uh, to a to a larger enterprise uh, that have a kind of moral agency, but they're seen simply as a creature. And not only are they seen as, as one of the many creatures that, that live on Earth, but they're seen as a somehow perversely evil, terrible creature that is so much worse than anything else on Earth. So it, it seems like the moral scale has really tipped. And um, the, the the visualization there and the, the language really comes from ecology. It comes from um, various other branches of biology where humans are the plague, the organism that keeps breeding. Essentially, um, they're vermin. The disease. You know, yeah. it's funny. Oh, it's not funny. Uh, ha ha. It's funny, ironic that, uh, as we have become more urbanized and more comfortable, you know, we, I think it's not, un- it's not uncommon for humans to take for granted that what they have, um, now, most kids don't know where their food comes from, don't know where their clothing comes from. Uh, many have never really had to work hard. Um, in their youth, they certainly didn't have the kind of discipline that they had in my age, much less uh, 50, 100, 200 years ago, where sometimes the discipline was just uh, they made a mistake and it wound up killing them. Um, they're often protected from that now. And that's um, the thing. That, and and if I, I think so they don't realize um, it's not just that they don't realize how good they got it and how far things have come. They see these constant changes in technology, for instance. Um, and they think it just happens with no effort, that it just seems to fall like manna from heaven and don't understand that, uh, human motivation and human ingenuity, uh, minds and bodies combine to create these things that they take for granted. That's true. And at the same time, another thing that they miss, and we try to emphasize that in the book, is that there's been a fundamental qualitative change in terms of uh, economic development in the last two centuries. And to sum it up briefly, humans have increasingly replaced things that grew on the surface of the planet, uh, like uh, fuel wood, like whale oil, like cotton, like wool, by things that come from below the surface. So uh, obviously we're surrounded by plastics, synthetic fibers. Uh, we built uh, buildings now not uh, not out of wood and stone, but out of uh, steel and cement. And so paradoxically, we've been able to create all this stuff around us by digging below the ground, which has allowed the, the planet to become a lot greener at the same time. So yes, the planet is greener, you could argue, because there are now more, uh, there's now more CO2 in the atmosphere, which makes vegetation more productive. But also at the same time, we've stopped harvesting a lot of things on the surface of the planet or growing things, fiber, uh, dyes historically, people had huge fields of things like indigo or matter, the plant that give you all those red, brown, orange colors, by things that come from below the surface. And when I hear my students and many other uh, young people to say today, keep fossil fuels in the ground, they only think about energy, but they don't realize how much else we get uh, <laughs> from below the surface and that their, uh, their desires to go back to, again, cotton, wool, uh, would would be a complete ecological catastrophe. Well, you oh, it's know, it's not only I, that. Yes, absolutely. It, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I hear that and I say, okay, tell them to go sit on the dirt because their seats are almost certainly made using fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and tell them to stop using their phones and computers because the plastic and the the chips that are in them all contain uh petroleum if if they if they really think that uh oil and gas you know oil is bad natural gas is bad because it makes the chemicals then tell them to stop using all the products every product they have in their lives uh, well, that's what I tell my take. students because a number of them are involved into this divest from fossil fuel movement. And if your listeners are not familiar with it, they want universities especially to stop owning uh, stocks in fossil fuel companies. But, you know, during the era of apartheid, we did not ask people to simply divest from uh, South African companies. We told them, stop buying from South Africa. So I often tell my students, well, uh, what are you willing to give up? Uh, would you be willing to give up your travels? Uh, would you be willing to give up your phone for two hours a day? And uh, and then they look at me like they, they're not connecting the two or they think that uh, somehow divesting is enough because uh, it's cheap virtue signaling on their part. So it's, uh, it's a message that needs to be conveyed better than uh, we have been able to. But I think... You know, I've seen a few light bulbs go up, uh, go, uh, go up when you mentioned this, uh, substituting resources from the surface of the planet by things that came from below the ground. Mm -hmm. And also explaining the environmental impact, the true environmental impact of what many students think are renewable resources that are quote unquote green. Um, recently I, I was able to work with students who were just starting to, um, discover that wind turbines destroy a lot of wildlife, specifically birds and bats, um, where they were so horrified by both the huge uh, land uh, surface impact uh, that these structures have, the huge costs to both build and uh, dismantle them, right? Because the, the, the accounting um, of um, the actual, uh, uh, let's say, a life cycle of, of one of these uh, structures is very rarely shown to students. But also once they realized how, how much wildlife they harvest through, through their operating cycle, uh, suddenly the equation of, uh, you know, a wind turbine uh, being green doesn't look so good anymore to students. But it does take work to realize that. Whereas the rhetoric of uh, um, green, quote unquote, sustainable power is incredibly cheap. And as you said, um, very rarely do people put um, pieces of real news together. And for example, given uh, the near catastrophe in Texas um, that uh, that happened because of an over-reliance on uh, renewable infrastructure, very rarely are they able to put that together with what other governments are doing and simply say, no, wait a minute, that's already proving to us that what you promised to us as sustainable energies are actually not working and they're taking up more space and they're taking out wildlife and our land with it. Well, it, it, all too true. Uh, I hope you can convince more to make connection. <laughs> like I you know, with my nieces, it's like, okay, I'm taking your phone. You just don't have a phone anymore. No more laptop for you. If you tell me one more thing about climate change and oil, because it's all made from that. I'm not going to let you be a hypocrite. I don't believe in it, but you do. And I'm not going to let you be a hypocrite in my house. <laughs> suddenly, <laughs> Even if, yeah. suddenly it's like, oh, we won't talk about climate change anymore around uh, Uncle Bubba. <laughs> 
but you know, being being a, a devil's advocate and saying, okay, well, let's say climate is changing, and we're not going to um, try to uh, right now establish whether or not humans are the primary or secondary or or any any drivers of the change. But change is, is change is in fact inevitable um, for climate as for many other um, variables. And taking that into account, uh, we see so many people um, who who are who are willing to look at reality. And you know, we're talking about Bjorn Bol. Lomborg and others who actually do the cost-benefit analysis, uh, who show show us that in, in, even in the face of change, there is really no better way of dealing with it than um, trying to maintain uh, the, the so-called fossil. I mean, it, it is a carbon-based uh, fuel infrastructure because it is really the only infrastructure that allows us to have stable baseload power without uh, making uh, inroads into, well, destroying environments, uh, destroying um, ecosystems, and also destroying people's lives. Because we can't forget that this is the only kind of energy that we have right now that can sustainably allow people to insulate themselves from whatever climate damages uh, might be uh, occurring. And of course, as as uh, our, our leaders um, never seem to bring up, there are fewer deaths due to climate issues now in, in an era when we can rely on um, carbon-based energies than have ever been. So uh, there are just so many, as you said earlier, data points that we should be contending with instead of the simple verbiage that we're all fed, that we hope that our book at least can uh, give in a few simple chapters a good summary of these talking points and these data points. Well, I've never that- been... Oh. Go ahead. I was going to say, I've never been a fan of the old saying that someone will have to die, but uh, we'll see what will happen in Europe this winter. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, Joanna, Joanna being from Europe still has family out there and, uh, well, uh, your listeners, uh, you have a very sophisticated audience. I'm sure many of them have followed the tragedy right. that is about to happen there, but, uh, especially in Germany. Yes. Well, my suspicion so, is it's happened already multiple times, multi, you know, multiple winters. And they just don't talk about it much. I heard a few winters ago that people were burning books in their homes in England. Uh, yeah, and in so, Germany too. So you know, <laughs> actually, that, I mentioned that. That seems to me that speech. seems to me to be a, a tragedy, uh, even if uh, even if uh, not death. I mean, to go back to burning books, if if only this time for climate ch- reasons rather than to censor people, it's still a. Uh, sad and I hear statement. that fuel wood now is becoming scarce in many parts of Europe. So uh, mm-hmm. yes. Indeed. Oh, I hear they're stealing it in Germany. That people are stealing yeah. wood from each other. So uh, yeah. that tells you, you know, we're 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 descending into what we got out of uh, the Habesian state of nature, where life in the state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Yeah, and if I may mention a brief, uh, we have a few pages in the book about uh, an environmental movement that a lot of people are unaware of today. So before uh, global warming, there was global cooling, there were uh, scares about running out of oil and food. But even before that, a century ago, what motivated uh, environmentalists was the fear that we were running out of soil, that people the world over uh, were burning everything around them because the population was growing and that the soil uh, was getting eroded. Of course, in the U.S., the high point was the Dust Bowl, but you had book published at the time uh, that justified colonialism in Africa saying that, well, if the British leaves, you know, the natives will just want to have more cows to impress the girl. They're already destroying the forest. We can get out of there. And so you have this very elitist movement that blame people the world over for being too primitive. And at the time, their solution was paradoxically 
uh, more technology. But I think you can make a very simple equation between the availability of carbon fuels and the impact uh, that this has on the landscape. So the classic example was the border between uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic a few years ago. But I don't know many of your listeners have ever seen picture of what uh, North Korea became once the Soviets stopped uh, sending them uh, petroleum. And there aren't many trees left in North Korea, as uh, some of your listeners may know. So, yes, as you say, we're going back to the Dark Ages. And the Dark Ages were actually really bad for nature compared to uh, the greening of the earth that carbon fields have made well, possible. Absolutely, because if we don't use resources from below the ground, we will end up using up everything we have on the surface. Yeah, well, and so bad for nature. And if you're one of those uh, odd people who still cares about th- such things, you know, terrible mm-hmm. for humans, but there you go. So absolutely. cutting to the chase, uh, according to climate alarmists, how is population uh causing or contributing to climate change and uh why do you say because we've only got so many minutes left why do you say that they're wrong well if i may quote the great philosopher ted turner i guess your listeners will know who he is he said a few years ago <laughs> ted turner said uh, a few years ago that uh, we have a climate problem because too many people have too much stuff. If there were less people, there would be less stuff and the climate would be, be would be better off. And again, the, the fundamental problem with him, I think, is that he's unable to see people as uh, creators, uh, problem solvers. There is no such thing as a uh, market in the jungle. People often make uh, an adequacy, uh, a link between the, the mar- markets and the love of the jungle, but no other animal trades physical good. Only humans do that. We move things over long distances. We special, we produce food in the best locations. We get more food out of less land. We use resources more efficiently, and there's no other species like us. Uh, and that's partly because, or at least in a large part, because we have the market, which allows us to allocate resources in, in the most efficient manner. And it's that efficiency uh, coupled with the fact that uh, there are incentives through the market for people to innovate, to get better. And um, uh, in um, at least in places where competition is still possible, to compete, to come up with ever better ways of doing things. I mean, it's the increased efficiency, uh, both in uh, the fact that there are more people coming up with different ideas pretty much simultaneously, and that they uh, live in some ways either closer together or that communication has brought them closer together, that allows knowledge to grow much faster, the kind of uh, positive uh, competitive outcomes to um, build up on top of each other they're much faster and there is uh, a lot of synergy that comes out of that so this is this is uh, how more people are actually much better at developing more out of what we have right um, as um, eric zimmerman uh, said uh, resources are not they become so w- people make uh, everything around them uh, including knowledge become a better resource and that's how we get to have more out of what we have. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I raised this point at the Liberty Fund Congress. I, I asked, what are resources? Because resources are what they are based on the level of technology that you have and the ingenuity to put an object or a kind of object to use. Look, um, 
Steel doesn't fall like manna from heaven. Iron is dug from the ground, and then they realized, combining it with coal, you can turn it into steel. Oil, it, it existed uh, for thousands, hundreds of thousands, ten millions of years. It was there, but it certainly wasn't a resource we worried about running out of until someone discovered it could be put to, put to some kind of use. Um, and that didn't happen, and that didn't happen before it did because of the knowledge base and the technology that was developed at the time. Someone saw uh, a black pool on the surface that no one had ever thought was very valuable. Uh, in fact, they probably thought it was waste and wish we could get rid of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And they said, you know what? We can, we can burn this. We can turn it into fuel to power things. Uh, we can transform it and make all sorts of things from it. And, uh, that didn't, that didn't just happen. It wasn't, it wasn't a resource until we made it a resource. Oh, absolutely. But, but if I may, one thing that uh, we expand on in a book and that not enough people realize is that a lot of resources were actually created out of waste products. So yeah. if you look at the case of uh, crude oil or petroleum, for example, at first, what people wanted out of it was kerosene, which had been developed as a substitute for whale oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much everything else was thrown away, including gasoline. But in time, people realized, well, if we develop the international, the internal combustion engine, gasoline can become something valuable. Uh, the meatpacking industry, at first, the only uh, portions of the animal that people were interested in uh, were uh, the meat and the leather. Everything else was thrown away. Well, you've got the rise of the big meat packers in Chicago. A lot of waste accumulates. At first, it's a pollution problem, but then they realize they can make all sorts of products out of it. Uh, fertilizers, uh, before plastic came along, a lot of things were made out of bones. Uh, all sorts of products gelatin. were made out of that. Gelatin. Oh, absolutely. Jello. 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 Well, we have, you know, and we have uh, margarine now that's uh, almost exclusively yeah. made from vegetable oils, but margarine was created out of, uh, the, you know, the fat of animals. And so, uh, Chris, waste. Crisco, I assume many of your listeners would be familiar mm, with Crisco, yes. but they might not realize that Crisco stands for crystallized cottonseed oil. And originally, uh, cottonseed was one of the worst... Uh, Ways that you had in the United States, Joanna and I actually wrote a big paper on that. I don't know if you... Well, a lot of early environmental protection uh, bills and legislation were um, enacted in the southern United States to actually deal with uh, uh, that uh, quote-unquote pollution, right, cottonseed. So, uh, yes, people, uh, instead of burning it or getting rid of it, found out fantastic ways of putting uh, the, both the, um, uh, the meal and the oil uh, into great use, coming up with not just Crisco, but but all sorts of cleaning agents and other fantastic things. I mean, there, there, there are foodstuffs both for people and animals made out of that. And this, it just, it just keeps on continuing. And as, as Pierre and I uh, noted, once you come up with a few products, the growth is almost exponential. And of course, it becomes ever more efficient as more people get involved because, because they can make money, right? Because they can turn something that would be thrown out into uh, a really good resource. I mean, another great example is um, silicon chips. I mean, the the element there is common in, in just in sand. Normally, we would not take uh, uh, give a second look to sand, and yet because it's uh, something that can uh, give rise to uh, pretty much all of our computer technology, it has become an incredible resource, right? So people do this all the time. We turn garbage into resources. But if I may. Uh- 
if you follow the Great Reset literature, <laughs> one of their main arguments is that we need to create a circular economy because our ancestors were so wasteful. They know nothing, and it's one of the key components of the Great Reset. And <laughs> the evidence is there. Markets have always rewarded turning in a source of pollution into a lucrative byproduct. That's the whole history of industrial development. Yeah. But you listen to people who are promoting that these days, they have no clue, and they believe that we should give more control to the government so that they promote the circular economy. Well, they don't even know. It was actually tried by communist planners because the idea of turning a pollution into something useful has occurred to anybody with a three-digit IQ in history, I imagine. And it was a complete disaster under communism for the usual problems, you know, incent bad incentives, lack of price, what have you. Like but yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And so, yes, this whole notion of a circular economy. Now, you see that in business schools, you see that in government, and yet markets have always done that. It's just the level of ignorance you need to teach in a business school today is somewhat surprising. <laughs> well, um, we've only got a couple minutes left here, Joanna. Uh, I want you to take sort of a big picture point of view here. If you can make just one point you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion day, about your book, what would it be? And uh, you might also mention, take some time to mention this, how your book makes a distinct contribution to the proper understanding of the climate issue. So the main contribution we make is mostly historical and also in terms of uh, the psychological factor we try to bring to explain why people can change their mind. So I will end, I will tackle the historical part. Let's just say that again, the main difference historically between so-called pessimist and so-called optimist is the way you view human beings. Either we're a bigger plague of locusts that consumes more and that uh, spreads uh, through various climatic zones in a way that locusts don't, or else uh, we acknowledge that humans came on, uh, gained their place on the top of the food chain because they uh, developed abilities that other animals don't have, especially the ability to trade uh, physical goods uh, and what motivates and the ability to recombine existing things in new ways. And so the way creative people work is that they see a problem and they typically solve it by combining existing things in new ways. And the more you combine and you recombine, the more you can combine and you can recombine. So the what really expands exponentially uh, what and what Malthus did not understand is not the number of mouths to feed, but really knowledge. Yes, and we also add to that insights um, that focus on why the view, the prevailing view is profoundly misleading and mistaken and in what ways it's a product of disciplinary biases rather than actual insights and knowledge, right? And it's also lacking real insights into what we need, data and economic behavior. We also discuss why uh, these perspectives uh, have lasted since even before time of Malthus. Um, and um, uh, we also uh, d uh, delve into why these views dominate in academic debates, especially, and of course, uh, by extension, um, uh, why government is, uh, is, is such a big actor here. So we examine uh, fin financial incentives among academics. We look at uh, activists. We look into also biases to drive the reasoning that's behind this all. The funny, you know, the, the sad thing is the people who are the pessimists cloak themselves in the mantle of science and tell you to follow the science. And, oh, yet, yeah. it's, and yet it is they who refuse, who patently refuse day after day after day to follow the scientific method, which says you propose a theory or a hypothesis, you uh, 
you try to explain how uh, the phenomena you're trying to understand works based on your hypothesis and you test it and data facts are key. And if the data undermines your theory, if data and theory collide, Einstein has said it, um, um, uh, Feynman said it, you know, these, these award winning scientists, these top scientists, they've all said when data and theory collide, it is the data that is the truth. The theory must give way. It must be altered or changed, or you must figure out why, despite the data, your theory is worth clinging to. And they never do that. They point to common right. sense. And yet they say they're following the science and that we who cling, <laughs> uh, uh, cling fiercely to the data are the ones that are being called science deniers. That's right. How can, how can they get your book, Population Bombed? Well, I think the easiest way is just to look on Amazon and to order it there. It's really quite inexpensive. It's still around 10 bucks, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so this is uh, – you can get a print version. You can get an electronic version. Uh, you can also navigate to our website. Uh, I believe it's just www.populationbomb.com. Um, that's uh, that's the easiest way. And bombed um, ED, yes. Yes, bombed because pop, the population bomb was uh, Paul and Anne Ehrlich's 1968, yeah. um, let's say, <clears throat> a cult classic. <laughs> Pierre, Joanna, uh, just as it was a pleasure meeting you last weekend, it's also been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. I want to thank you by, on behalf of myself and our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow the work of Pierre de Rochers and Joanna Swersmack and the claims made that population growth is causing environmental problems and as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts, tell on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye.